Hi everyone, welcome back to the Discovering Humanity in Health podcast. Today we have Dr. Patel here to share her experiences and journey in medicine. Hi Dr. Patel, I'm so excited to have you here. So my first question for you is, can you introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm Kumkum Patel. I am a board certified gastroenterologist. I live and work in Southern California and I have a subspecialty in anorectal and esophageal motility and functional bowel diseases. Awesome, that sounds really cool. So what sparked your interest in the medical field and why did you decide to become a doctor and choose your specialty? Um, that's a great question. So um, I, I think I always wanted in some form to work with people and work with um, things that would provoke a lot of uh, change and be very exciting. So initially in undergrad, I actually pursued biomedical engineering because I found it fascinating. You could work with technology. It was the latest things that are happening um, that combine the field of science, technology, math, and you can do a lot with it. And through that, I felt that, you know, I really found, um, you know, my love and passion for healthcare. But I realized that, um, you know, with engineering, I wouldn't be satisfying my personal need for seeing new people and interacting with new people and also working with my hands um, to kind of quote unquote fix uh, problems. So hence why I decided to pursue medicine because I felt that that was my calling. Um, I had also done uh, volunteer work when I was um, pretty young, started probably um, 13 or 14. My first time that my parents took me back to India after I had migrated here I went and volunteered some time because my parents took me for about three months to India and I was getting bored. Uh, and so I was like, you know what, why don't I volunteer at a local hospital? And I did. And seeing what a medical system like is like um, in a different country, it really opens your eyes to the plight of the underserved. and really, you know, the disparities that there truly are in other countries and how it differs from, um, you know, medicine and, and healthcare in the United States. So, you know, I decided I wanted to be at least be able to offer my, you know, experiences and my background and help those um, who couldn't help themselves. That's such an insightful response. And I totally agree with you. My aunt actually owns a diabetes clinic in India. And whenever I visit my family there, I always volunteer at her clinic. And um, it, you're really true. Um, seeing how healthcare works in a different country is a very insightful experience. Absolutely. So were there any obstacles that you overcame on your journey to becoming an MD? Oh, gosh, uh, where do I begin? Um, so um, in choosing, um, you know, becoming a doctor, you know, you realize that it is not just a straight linear path uh, in becoming a doctor. There is a lot involved. Obviously, you have to take um, courses to become a, a doctor as a, an undergrad. Then you have to take the examinations. But not just that, there are financial commitments, personal commitments, social commitments, emotional commitments that people don't necessarily think about. You know, everyone thinks about that, oh, you have to do the four-year journey in college and do really well in your undergrad courses, volunteer a lot, do research, 
do really well in the MCATs, and then you get into medical school, and then you become a doctor. And unfortunately, the path isn't as linear as it sounds, because what people don't mention is that there are so many other societal factors. And for me, um, one of the biggest um, hurdles in becoming a physician was one, I didn't really have as much guidance um, in pursuing that path. You know, I did what I thought was appropriate from the people I volunteered with and the, uh, you know, the doctors I knew in my community, but my parents themselves were not physicians. My father is an engineer, my mom is a teacher. And so I didn't have, you know, a, a family full of doctors who could guide me in what the right thing was to do, what was something that would provide work-life balance or what was the right field to pursue. And so I kind of had to find that on my own. And we also came from modest uh, finances. My, we immigrated here to the United States in 1993. And so we were immigrants. And with that, and, and uh, my father was a sole breadwinner in our family. Um, and so primarily we didn't have a lot of money. So I had to, when I, I knew that I was going to go to medical school, it was going to be on scholarships if I was fortunate enough to gain any and loans. And so you don't really realize how expensive it is to become a doctor uh, until you're in it. And then you realize that there are so many commitments and, you know, halfway through, even if you feel like, you know, oh my gosh, am I going to make it through? Is this the right path for me? Sometimes your responses are driven by, oh my, you know what? I have no other choice. I'm knee deep in debt and I better become a doctor because I've put in so much into it. So uh, for me, uh, you know, taking out, I'm now, I probably have over $500,000 of loans because I went to a private school and I went to school in the Caribbean and it's expensive. And do I regret it? No, not at all. I'm extremely glad I became a doctor, but it's difficult. I'm still paying uh, my loans every month, but now I have a family and, uh, you know, a home and, and a vehicle and uh, other, you know, expenses to pay for. And so, um, you know, my medical school loans are part of that. And that's something you don't necessarily talk about in your journey, journey to becoming a doctor is that what is the life after that? And so, you know, that's something I want to bring some more attention to. Yeah, that's a really great point. I also wanted to add that um, I'm not sure if this is for everyone, but at least from my experiences, especially when we do like career readiness at schools, there's a section where you can look at the salaries of some of the careers that you want to go into. And a lot of like a lot of people just automatically think that, oh, my gosh, a doctor earns so much money. And that kind of influences their decision. But um, I think this financial aspect of it, like it takes so much to actually get there. And by then, as you said, you're already in so much financial commitment. So I think it's really important to talk about that. That's exactly right. And I don't think that people necessarily realize that even if someone is making, let's say a six figure salary, they don't, it also has to play into account where they live, how much taxes they're paying, how much other financial commitments do they have? Like, do they have children at home? Do they have parent, elderly parents they're taking care of? Are they having to pay for loans? Are they having to pay for a home? And so, you know, a lot of that falls into that, right? If you're fortunate enough to come from a wealthy family that's able to prevent you from having to get medical school loans, it 
certainly um, alleviates that burden, but that's only one aspect of the obstacles that are overcoming, you know, that you have to overcome in becoming a doctor. There's the social, uh, the, the personal uh, aspects, because you are spending your 20s in school. And so that's something that you have to also realize. And, um, you know, while some of your colleagues and classmates may graduate and start their adult jobs and get married and start having families, you may still be a student and a trainee. And so that's something you have to come to terms with and be okay with or have open discussions about. So that's something that I had to also, you know, come to realize with because I had to, um, you know, my husband and I met in medical school and we had uh, kids in residency. At the end of residency is when we finally uh, got pregnant and we had children in fellowship. So, you know, that's part of our journey. And we had to delay that because training was so crucial. And so that's something that, you know, people need to be uh, wary of. Yeah, absolutely. So were there any memorable experiences that you had during your education where you were able to explore the humanistic side of the healthcare field? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, if starting from medical school to even now, I think that you know, looking at why we went into medicine in the first place is really important. Um, you know, I think all of us in some essay or some, you know, uh, contest or something have, you know, stated in some way or another that we wanted to help people, right? And a lot of that is like, where, where does that innate desire come from? It's, it's the desire to help those who cannot help themselves, right? And so, uh, in medical school, I was fortunate enough to be inducted into something called the Gold Humanism Honor Society. And it, this is a peer-nominated uh, society, um, which uh, to similar to the AOA uh, for your merits, but this is for um, your ability to be a humanistic uh, person and physician. Um, and this is something where I was nominated to, to be a part of. And it was because during medical school, for uh, three other uh, medical students and I came up with a foundation to raise money in Grenada, which is uh, the island where St. George's University School of Medicine is located. We raised money for um, different people, for different, uh, for different causes, and one specifically for a young boy who needed a heart valve transplant. And so we fundraised for him and also helped arrange for him to go and get this uh, valve uh, transplanted in a hospital in the United States. But as medical students, we don't really have access as easily as doctors do. So this was a big feat for us. And especially because we were doing it for someone on the other uh, you know, in a different country. So that was the first time where I got to help make a difference for someone who was highly underprivileged and wasn't living in, in the United States where uh, this type of surgery is readily available and easily available. So that was the first time, and I was honored to be um, elected to the Gold Humanism Honor Society uh, for that. And, you know, even as a doctor today, in during times of COVID, there is a lot that we see, you know, um, volunteering. Uh, my colleagues and I, uh, in our gastroenterology practice, took a time for each, uh, during a, a week at a time, to work in the COVID ICU. So even though we are subspecialists and are not 
pulmonologist nor a critical care intensivist, we spent some time helping out. And in what way, you ask, it was to help, you know, manage patients and call their families and give them an update of what's happening. For me, I am able to speak five other languages besides English. And so I was able to translate what was happening for a lot of the patients. And they were just so incredibly grateful to be able to hear a voice that could speak their language and get an update on their family's healthcare because they're not able to visit. They really can't FaceTime with them because their family member is intubated and is not, is, you know, comatose or is not, uh, you know, is currently sedated. And so, you know, receiving an update from uh, a medical field member who can speak to them in their language and kind of break it down um, was just so touching for so many patients. And I was so honored to be able to do that for them, even though I wasn't the primary uh, ICU doctor taking care of that patient that during that week that I volunteered in the ICU with my colleagues, I at least felt like I was making a difference um, and, you know, helping in one way or another. So I, I felt that throughout my education and in my, in my current job, I feel like uh, I've been able to keep in touch with the humanistic side of medicine. Wow, that's truly inspiring. It's so impressive you can speak five other languages. Wow. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. A lot of them are, are Indian languages, but um, Spanish is, is definitely another. Yeah, that's really cool. It definitely does make a difference when people talk to you in your native tongue, at least from Absolutely. my personal experience. Absolutely. All right. So is there anything that you have been doing to promote women of color in the medical field? Absolutely. So a lot of my colleagues and I are on Instagram because we find that, you know, young people and even people uh, older are getting on the internet to find sources of information. And so what better way than to be on a platform where everyone is on already and provide medical information and, you know, a support network. And so my colleagues uh, who uh, also share their love for being on Instagram, um, we decided to collaborate together and make something called the South Asian Wellness and Health Summit and also the Fem Health Summit. And these are, we're all just doctors. Uh, a lot of us are personally friends or have been become friends through Instagram. And we put together virtual summits on topics that are very um, near and dear to South Asian women. Um, anxiety, depression, health, nutrition, gut health, postpartum, and you know, just talking about things uh, that are not, not necessarily talked about in the South Asian community, periods, um, you know, menstruation, sex, sexuality, um, you know, kind of making those topics kind of uh, appropriate and, and not, not only appropriate, but something that is normal. So we wanted to normalize it by putting it out there and having a position of power and having a platform that gives us power, we felt that it was only appropriate for us to be able to reach out and empower others. So um, that's what we've been doing. We're, we're using our platforms on social media to create summits that all women, women of color can um, access, and access freely and access easily so that they're able to hear um, topics being discussed and even join in so that they can ask their questions that they don't feel necessarily comfortable asking uh, in any other place. 
That's amazing. I feel like there's so many topics that have been taboo or culturally taboo that aren't necessarily wrong or bad. So normalizing those conversations is definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was young, I think a lot of these topics were definitely not discussed. So you you, you discuss them with your friends in private, but never on the internet because you're afraid of what others were going to say, never around other people who may have had differing opinions. But now with social media, the world has become a lot smaller. And with the empowerment of women, you know, we've learned to stand up and there's strength in numbers. So, you know, whatever we can do as a society to kind of normalize those taboo topics, uh, the better, you know, and if we empowered women, empower women, right? That's a statement that a lot of us say. So. If, if I am, am so empowered, I should do my part in empowering others. That's a beautiful saying. That was my last question for you. This was truly an amazing conversation. I learned a lot and whatever you're doing is so inspiring and I'm sure other people feel the exact same way. Thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure on my end as well.